when I first started, even with the first rental property, which which I'll elaborate on, after that first property, I, I expected it to take probably 20 to 30 years before I would have enough uh, cash flow to, to quit my day job. Mm-hmm. And uh, in reality, I think it was just about four years uh, from wow. the day of the first purchase to, to actually exit the rat race. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, Reed Goosens here, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. I hope you're having a great day. Thanks for dropping by and tuning in and continuing to grow your investing knowledge of U.S. real estate. Each week, we come to you live from Los Angeles, California, talking about all things related to U.S. real estate investing and how you too can successfully break into the U.S. market as an international investor, just like I did. Each episode, we'll be interviewing the cream of the crop of successful real estate entrepreneurs and good old-fashioned go-getters who can help provide you the tools to start successfully investing in the U.S. If you're new to the show, then welcome. I know you'll get a lot of cracking information and actionable steps to start successfully investing in the US or help move your business to the next level. If you're a returning listener, then you already know you're in the right place. You're all a bunch of legends as you're continuing to take action steps to better your future and learn from our inspirational guests. So without further ado, let's get into today's show. On today's show, we have a very inspirational real estate entrepreneur, investor, and all-round good bloke who is killing it at the moment. My guest today in the hottest seat in town is Sepp Beckman. G'day, Sepp. Welcome to the show. Hey, Reed. It's good to be on here. So Sepp is a full-time real estate investor who escaped the rat race at the age of 31. He's now set up his own real estate investing business with a very successful team, which specializes in acquiring portfolios of single-family rental properties, and he currently controls over 88 doors. Sepp enjoys helping busy professionals invest in real estate investing so they too can retire faster and make every day a Friday. So Sepp is a very inspirational guy, listeners. Not too long ago, Sepp was working a 9-to-5 J-O-B, and over time, Sepp developed enough passive income to break out of the rat race and become a real estate investor full-time. So listeners, today's show is really understanding Sepp's journey and to show you that it's not rocket science when it comes to breaking free of your day job. It's all about understanding the power of passive income and continuing to grow that income dream until it is greater than the salary from your day job. But Seth, before we jump into the juicy stuff, can you tell the listeners something that most people might not know about you unrelated to real estate investing? Sure. Actually, uh, so my background, I, I was raised with the traditional thought of go to school, get good grades, get a job, and go for your advanced degrees. So I've never taken any business classes, any formal real estate classes. I don't even have my real estate license, actually. And, <laughs> um, and that's kind of a surprise when I talk to a lot of new investors. So, Sepp, with that being said, can you give the listeners a little bit more in-depth look at your background, really where you've come from? You obviously haven't come from a traditional real estate background. None of us really have. And really what motivated you to go down the path of becoming a successful real estate entrepreneur and take the plunge to leave your day job? Reed, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Office Space. Yes, uh, I have. It, was, uh, it came out back in yeah, 1999. That, <laughs> that movie is kind of the, in my opinion, the epitome of the rat race. When I was going to college, um, I had really high expectations for what the workforce would be like. You know, mm-hmm. you, you go work for this employee and you get to go on these, work on these adventurous projects. 
I'm sorry, go work for the employer and work for these adventurous projects. And mm-hmm. uh, the real life experience was very much different. It was, you know, cubicles, there was competition. And I, I just remember even the first job, every every single day that I wake up uh, during that week, weekdays, I, I would wake up in a cold sweat. Uh, <laughs> I was I was very nervous and, you know, just not enjoying it. I didn't feel like I was giving, uh, you know, being fully challenged or, you know, doing all that I could. And I just felt like another number in the system, uh, you know, a cog in the machine, if you will. Uh, and I, I kept that for for a couple of years. Uh, actually, I was laid off twice during the global financial crisis. Wow. So I, I hadn't read any of the yeah none of the real estate investing books, but I, I definitely know what I felt like when you when you have expenses every month and mm-hmm. you don't have the cash flow or the income stream to support that. Mm-hmm. On my second job, actually, is uh, when a family member actually recommended I read Robert Kiyosaki's book Conspiracy of the Rich, mm-hmm. and uh, that was kind of his uh, one of his follow up books, The Rich Dad Poor Dad, and that was. That was kind of the the game changer for me. I mean, it, I, I I was I was already up to that point. I was kind of interested in real estate just in terms of you know I'll save up enough money for down payment for a mm-hmm. house, mm-hmm. but I wasn't really looking at it in terms of income property. Right. And that that book just really got me motivated to to take the next step forward. Fantastic. So really, you just you went to university, I take it, and then you you got out into the workforce. Like you're very similar to myself, and you didn't enjoy what you you, you sort of found. You know, I um, I know when I got into the workforce, I I sort of looked up and I was in this cubicle, and I said, I can't be doing this for the next forty years of my life, and that was really my why factor and why I wanted to start learning more about, you know, creating financial freedom for myself and fi- and long-term wealth. So it sounds like we've got very similar backgrounds. And, and I, I take it that was sort of the, the, the why for you was that you just couldn't be in the rat race anymore and you couldn't answer to someone else and you wanted to be your own boss, correct? Exactly. Yep. And and also because I, you know, I did work with a couple of, actually with, with each job, there were several employees uh, that that were much older, probably two or three times my age. You know, mm-hmm. many of which I thought would have been retired by now, and uh, and they weren't really happy working there either. I mean, they, I think they would complain more than express gratitude uh, for being over there. So I was kind of like, wow, is this, is this going to be me in four years from now? <laughs> right, right. And mate, look, huge congratulations to yourself. When did you actually leave your day job? How long ago? actually quit my uh, day job in December of 2014. Fantastic. So less than 12 months ago, listeners, and, you know, it was over a period of time. And I'm just, I'm, I'm so, I love talking to people like yourself, Sep, that actively get out there and they're sick of their current situation they're, and then they're, they're not going to blame it on anyone else. And they say the only thing that they can do is they can change it themselves. They're not going to rely on anyone else. And I'm really, really glad, you know, that I've got you on the show because you're really an inspirational guy. So, Sepp, as you and I know firsthand, there's no better motivator or way to expedite your growth than to become a full-time investor. So today I wanted to outline a few ways I've seen people break out of their day job and start putting all the energy into successfully being a real estate entrepreneur. And for those listeners who are listening who still work a nine to five and want to walk away as soon as they can, I hope you get some ideas and inspiration from Sepp uh, and a bit about his background from today's episode. The number one question I get asked, Sepp, is when is it the right time to take the leap of faith and quit your day job? So, Sepp, can you explain to the listeners the process really from start to finish and sort of a bit of a detailed explanation of how you, over time, whilst working full-time, develop enough passive income from starting out with you know no real estate to be able to walk into your boss's office and say, hey, I'm, uh, here's my resignation. I'm, I'm quitting because I've got enough passive income to go out and do this thing full-time. Sure. Well, when I first started, even with the first rental property, which which I'll elaborate on, after that first property, I, I expected it to take probably 20 to 30 years before I would have enough uh, cash flow to, to quit my day job. Mm-hmm. And uh, in reality, I think it was just about 
four years uh, from wow. the day of the first purchase till to actually exiting the rat race. And that's still with making a lot of mistakes along the way, failing fast, failing forward, failing repeatedly, and, and you know getting back up. Right. When I first started, the first two properties I did, I, I just saved up the money. I read the Kiyosaki books, mm-hmm. and, and actually that helped me kind of not just jump in and buy my, my first deal. I, I think it helped me understand more of what to look for in terms right. of how to analyze deals. I just started, I'd practice, I would, I would look at deals and, and start talking to other investors, start networking. Mm-hmm. And um, after the Kiyosaki books, I, I found podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's definitely essential. You know, I think the books are good to get the technical, the, the education, the podcasts are really good, uh, especially in the sense you, you read, in terms of, you know, having that continued motivation and, and, you know, just keep a pulse on, on what other investors are doing and how the markets are changing. I was continuing with the financial education. The first two deals I just did with bank financing, the traditional 25% down mm-hmm. at the time was traditional. And uh, after the second deal, I actually ran out of money. So <laughs> then I didn't want to wait and save money for another down payment. Right. Uh, so I started exploring uh, alternative acquisition strategies, and that's that's where I came across seller financing and, and raising capital for some of the deals. Fantastic. So you said it a little bit ago, it took four years to get you from, by the time you picked up your first book to being able to, was that was that four years by the time you picked up your, your first real estate book to the time you left your day job, or was that by the time you picked, you closed on your first deal to the time you left your day job? It was the time from I uh, closed on the first deal. Yeah, fantastic. And and so that first deal, you're saying that you just finance with, with typical 25% down and then you bought a second one. How long between the first and the second one was it? You know, as you're saying, you thought it was going to take 25 years or something, but actually you sort of, by the sounds of it, you got the bug, the real estate investing bug, and you want to just do as much as, much as you can, which is fantastic. But what, what sort of pro- time process was that between the first and second deal? And then by the, by the time you got your third and fourth deal or whatever it was that you realized that you needed to become more savvy with your investing, because as you said, you ran out of money. Well, the first two deals, the difference in time between the two is a couple of seconds because I did purchase them at the same time from mm-hmm. the same vendor. There were two uh, two separate four-unit buildings, four-unit apartment buildings, and they were next to each other. So technically, it's an eight-unit. But wow. Yeah, and those were two different loans, two different parcels. Then from the time between those first two transactions to the third deal, which was seller finance, that was about four months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was also in the same city that I invested in. Right, right. And what what city do you currently invest in now, or did did you cr- take the first plunge? The first three deals were in the same city, and that was in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, and fantastic. then yeah, from there I've, I've gone on to San Antonio, Texas, Richmond, Virginia, and mm-hmm. uh, we're currently evaluating two other markets. So we we invest where the numbers make sense, and when we have good uh, good teams in the ground. Fantastic. And just for those listeners out there, SEP has started out with Phoenix, Arizona, which is just near the state next to California. And it has been quite strong over the last, since the recession, in buying sort of cheaper houses. Uh, Sep, do you want to walk us through some of the numbers that you picked up your first two deals for, just in terms of, you know, what you put down, how much it was renting for, and how much you, you had cash flowing? Each of the buildings, the first, the fourplex uh, was $125,000 uh, mm-hmm. US for the purchase price. Mm-hmm. And the down payment was approximately 30, I think it was $33,000, not counting the closing costs, maybe another four thousand dollars if that mm-hmm. and the the overall monthly payment on a five at the time was a five point two five percent uh interest amortized over thirty years. Right. The monthly mortgage including the taxes and, and uh insurance was about five hundred and fifty dollars per month. Wow. And if yes, assuming all four units were rented, which that's another challenge, uh 
was uh, the gross monthly rent was approximately one thousand eight hundred dollars. Wow. And, and the reason why I say it was a challenge is because the, the learning experience was in how to manage these properties out of state um, right, and right. going through multiple property managers. Yep. And, and did you finally were able to get those to a point where they're operating without any hiccups? Because I know I've invested in a couple of lower end deals. Uh, I'm not sure what type of deals yours were, but it took me a little bit of time as you were just alluding to that to get it, get the right property manager or get the right team and get the op, get the building operating sort of, like a well-oiled machine, how you know how how long did it take you to get that up and running? Well, those first two deals it took a lot longer than it should have. Uh, it took uh, just about two years, uh, a little bit more than two years. And, and but once you find that good property manager and you're able to manage that manager, um, it's just a totally different experience. It's, you know, it's a lot more fun. And and you know, I don't uh, make the same mistakes as I did when I first started out. Right, right, right. And Seth, just to elaborate a little bit more, it took you to, in that two-year period. Was, was it you're still making cash flow correct? It was just that you're having some high turnover issues with your tenants, or is, was that the problem? Correct. That was that was part of the problem, and also um, part of the problem was with the the property management companies. It wasn't just that we couldn't keep the occupancy high, but it was also the tenants that we were bringing in mm-hmm. were not really the best tenants. Even even though the rent was only four hundred and you know fifty dollars a month at the time, uh, they were causing several thousand dollars worth of damages when wow. when they would move out. You know, right, they were right. putting bleach on the on the carpets, bashing the windows, and yep. that had to come out of pocket. Right, right. Um, and you know, the, and the difference between that the current property management company that we've had in place for a couple of years now compared to the first two is the deposit, the screening process. You know, they don't let those types of problems happen because uh, we just say no to, to tenants that don't belong there, uh, right. that don't meet the criteria. Right. So can you just elaborate a little bit more on the type of asset class in the neighborhood, that the type of class of neighborhood that these properties are in? Uh, these were probably more, at the time, they were probably C and C-class neighborhood and we had some d class tenants mm-hmm. and now it's actually improved at the point where the neighborhood is more c plus d minus mm-hmm. and, and the tenant base is, is in alignment with that fantastic that's that's great I, and i think that's a really good piece of takeaway information and that was you're, you're, you're clearly by the sounds of it that your property manager was just throwing anyone in there to keep the vacancy high but in turn it cost you a lot more money because there was a lot more turnover so taking that time to screen your tenants and do a background check or whatever it might be get the deposit off them they typically are they now lasting longer and not leaving as quickly or you don't you have less of a turnover they are lasting longer definitely and, and because it is tempting when when you have a vacant unit at a rentals i'm, I'm sure you've gone through it too it is it's kind of tempting to take uh to say yes to the tenant that, that shows up and says hey i'll give you the first month's deposit and rent and cash even though i just had a former i just had an eviction a couple months ago right a lot of landlords make a mistake in saying yes a lot of property managers i should say also make that same mistake yeah but it's it definitely pays off to be patient and and to uh to keep that criteria consistent right and so sep in that two-year period that you purchased your first two deals you're still working full-time correct uh and then you said what it was a how how much how much longer after until you bought your third property with seller financing uh that was just a couple months i think about three four months after the first two Mm -hmm. so i was still going through the the management uh hurdles the first two but i I knew i'd eventually get solved um and i just kept on investing in the meantime right right so it wasn't taking any money out of your pocket it was just more taking your time and your energy correct well, for uh, the third one was more on the time and energy. The first two, it, it was taking a little bit of you know money out of the pocket because at the time I didn't I didn't really have anyone to go to to ask for, for advice. 
I didn't have any other real estate investors that, that could that could leverage their experience. So mm-hmm. um, I, I kind of had to make the mistakes on my own and kind of learn how to navigate it. Right, right. And so what is that property? I think you were alluding, in total, how is it now cash flowing those properties? How, what, how are they performing these days? What are they cash flowing per month positively? Yeah, it's, so it's ironic. Those first, uh, you know, two, two, actually three properties that were giving me so much headache earlier, those were, uh, those have been a big part of my, uh, of my getting out of that race. They've been so consistent. They've been cash flowing great for several years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gross rents originally at, it was supposed to be around 1800. Mm-hmm. We've uh, since then done uh, renovations of the interior and exterior and uh, gross rents are close to about $2,400 per property. Wow. Yep. And yeah, it's been great. And so of that 2,400, you obviously need to put some aside for expenses and some aside for mortgage. So what is left over at the end of the day, once you do all that sort of stuff? Overall cash flow, it's uh, about 500 to $600 per building. Per building. Great, great. So, Seth, most people who decide to move from part-time to full-time investing often don't set themselves up with enough access to capital. So can you walk us through the numbers of your journey and how much did you think you needed coming in each month before you said, okay, this I've got enough coming in, I can now quit my day job? Or was it more that you just sort of, took the leap of faith and jumped, even though that you know maybe you didn't have as much financial stability as you might wanted to? Well, I, I kind of define it based on the, the cash flow uh, 101 game by mm-hmm. Robert Kiyosaki. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the game, that same question is basically how, how one wins wins the game. It's basically at what point uh, do we have enough passive income to cover our, our monthly expenses? Right. And, and there's two versions of the game. The 202 game says you should have twice as much passive income as your expenses before you quit. Right. The one-on-one version says you just need to have your passive income equal to, you know, or, or just right above your monthly expenses. Right. Uh, so I, I got out right when they were kind of neck and neck. And, and I did have some reserves on the side because I, I didn't feel like I wanted to continue um, just waiting. And, and you know, I, I was putting in 40 hours with the job and, um, to me, the, the time was more important, and right. and since then, you know, if, if you have if you have an extra forty hours free up per week, mm-hmm. you could do a lot more. You could you could get more deals done. You can you can see more properties. You can travel more. And I, I don't think it takes as much time as as just having the, the burden of that the full time employment. Right, right. Well, that's that's that sort of leads me into my next question: is that since quitting your day job, how much more successful have you been that you can now focus a hundred percent on your real estate business and your portfolio compared to when you're working a nine to five? Wow, everything, it's just like, it's almost as if it's just been turbocharged since <laughs> then. Uh, you know, the, the team has grown, you know, the, the property portfolio, we're, we're at about uh, 13 houses and gosh, uh, 70, or how many, uh, I think it's about 70, 78 multifamily units. Fantastic. And yeah, we're working on uh, a couple other deals at the moment as well. So we're, we're just, I'm, I'm able to get a lot more done uh, with less of my own time because I can leverage my team's experience and, and partner's experience as well. Great, great. And so let's talk a little bit about your team. You know, on this show, we're a huge, I talk a lot about setting up the right team around you to become successful. Can you walk us through which team members were vital to you to helping you reach the point that you could quit your day job? You said you, a bit early on in the first couple of properties, you didn't have anyone really to turn to or other investor friends to ask for advice to better manage those properties in the first two years. And if you'd if you'd built a better team at that time, would, would you have been able to escape the rat race a little quicker? Most definitely. <laughs> so what team members were they that, that you said, okay, I need to get X, I need to get this person, I need to get this person on my team who can I can turn to 
Uh, definitely uh, with with income properties, even if if uh, the the rental properties are are near where you live, I think it is absolutely necessary to have uh, a third party property management company. Mm-hmm. And um, we we try to avoid the smaller uh, one man or woman operations where mm-hmm. it's just one person managing say 50, 50 different properties right. uh, because that is a it's a major single point of failure. If, if something happens to that one property manager, all of their their properties that they manage are basically at risk. Right. Uh, so we like to have uh, property management companies with in-house leasing teams, uh, in-house leasing agents that they handle all the marketing for the property, you know, 24-hour uh, phone call support to handle any after-hours uh, maintenance emergencies, in-house maintenance teams, mm-hmm. you know, just of course district managers depending on whether it's uh, multifamily or or uh, or single family. And that's just on the uh, the management side. And if you are planning on doing renovations, have at least two contractors. You could have two really good contractors, but um, at any given moment, one of them might just be burdened with with a lot of other projects. So you just want to have a little bit of diversity with that and have some options to choose from. Right. Um, and another aspect too is, and I'm not sure how much it applies to uh, to international investors, but even just the the tax uh, side of it is, is very important. Uh, domestically, there's w- within the U.S. there's there's so much tax benefit from investing in income properties that it's good to have a good real estate CPA. And I want to make sure I underline that the CPA has to have a, a focus and a specialty in real estate mm-hmm. because they can they can adjust your uh, your investment and tax strategy to be able to utilize the IRS tax code so that you can uh, you can invest more of your money and and be able to take advantage of uh, as many tax deductions as legally possible. Yep, we we actually have a we've had a a couple of tax guys on the on the on the program, and they've been really really helpful for international investors. Uh, but you're right, it's it's all about developing that team, and you sort of ticked all the the major ones that I would have suggested, which was a property manager, a good GC, and a good accountant, and, I, and sometimes I would throw in there a good lawyer, if, if depending of the state you might be investing in. Josep, was there a point where you're working full time throughout the day, uh, then trying to do your real estate investing on the side, and you obviously were working crazy hours? But you said, you know, I, I know I get a lot of people asking me that I'm going to be nervous or they don't know what they're going to do with their time once they quit, and, and they got the new inverted commas work day that they're now looking to build in their portfolio. Can you explain a little bit how you, you, you quit your day job and then you sort of the following Monday you woke up and you're like, oh, okay. Uh, I've got a new workday. How do I build my portfolio? And then how did you go from that point to turbocharging now where you're just going, you're doing gangbusters, you're flying around the country doing a bunch of stuff? Oh, that's that's uh, such a great point. Um, you know, I, and I think it is definitely important for everyone to have a game plan established in terms of even down to the minute per day. Cause, mm-hmm. um, I, I found that after I got out of that race, I, I was sleeping a lot more. You know, the first couple of weeks, I, you know, I just felt like I had so much more free time, but I, I don't know if it was, I, I actually definitely was not used to the maximum benefit. You know, the, the right. days were going by faster. And then it wasn't until I had a calendar, a schedule, and I would just write down every single thing that I was doing per day, activities for fun, activities for real estate, for talking to investors. And then I, you know, just keeping with that schedule, I've, I think it's been a big help. So it's not, you know, less time is wasted and I'm, I'm doing more of what I guess me closer to my goals and uh, lets me help uh, more people than I could before. Fantastic. So you're all about setting up your agenda for the day and making sure you hit that agenda um, because I know that someone came to me the other day and said, Reid, I'm going to be very nervous and we think I'm you could sometimes fall into a, a rut of not being able to push yourself. So can you talk a little bit about how 
you motivated yourself to go out and, and to continue to grow that portfolio. Obviously, that just doesn't happen. You know, you've quit your day job. You've got all this time in your hands. As you're saying, you're sleeping a little bit more. Can you fall into some sort of complacency? And, and if so, what do you do to, to get rid of that complacency? Absolutely. Actually, um, Ken McElroy, the, the Rich Dad advisor, had said that one of the mistakes that he's seen a lot of uh, tech entrepreneurs from, say, Silicon Valley or um, – they're just very wealthy business men or women. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make a lot of money in one particular industry. They quit, and then they go off and do something else, and then they're just not as happy. And then when they try to get back into uh, a, a new type of business, it, it doesn't work out as what they expect it to be. So right. I think it's really important for investors to to have written goals and uh, and just and keep you know those written goals updated. You could do it on a monthly basis, a, a, you know, a quarterly basis, and. Um, and adjust it because uh, one thing and the goals will definitely happen a lot faster than you expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also it's good to just keep pushing yourself to the next limit. You know, what, what needs to change within the current system or the current investment model uh, for me to get to the next uh, goal on the list? You know, what, what do I need to adjust to make that happen? And, and Sep, obviously when you quit your day job and you now uh, are sitting at your, your home office or wherever you do your work, did you have to? Did you set specific goals, and you're saying I need to develop my team in X, in this, in this state, or in this state, or I need to get so and so on my team to help me find more deals? Because I guess that's that's the real sticking point of where people they've quit their day job. They're like, okay, I'm, I've got some passive income coming in to, to to take care of the bills, but I want to continue to grow that portfolio. So, what specific steps did you set for yourself, or goals, as you like to say, to help you get to that turbocharge moment? Going back to what I mentioned earlier, that with my engineering background, part of the struggle that I had earlier on was because I didn't have those uh, the management training. I had to learn it from from books, from audiobooks, from podcasts, mm-hmm. and just engineers in general. We we do kind of have a, a reputation for uh, for being micromanagers. So I kind of had to step away from some aspects of the business. Right. There's there's a thing that you know done is better than perfect. <laughs> and on some aspects you know, of of the investing, you know, when it even comes down to like the property colors. I just want to make sure everything is is perfect, but then I get in my own way. So, you know, with like when it comes to renovation teams, uh, or I'm sorry, when it comes to renovations, uh, I delegate that to a member of the team. When it comes to unit upgrades or to even uh, deal analysis, there's there's someone for each compartment that that can handle that task. Right. So a little bit more of working on the business rather than in the business, if so, so to speak. Exactly. Yep. So, Sep, I mentioned in the introduction that you like to help other busy professionals invest in real estate so they can too retire faster and make every day a Friday. Can you elaborate a little bit how your company helps those individuals reach similar success to yourself? Sure. So, I think any real estate investor can be uh, divided up into one of two categories, either being active or passive. Mm-hmm. And the active investor, I'd, I'd say, is more or less uh, even what, what you do, Reed, where you actually, you know, in terms of finding the deals and uh, overseeing the teams and gathering the investors together so everyone can participate in those deals without the hassle, the headaches. Mm-hmm. And then the passive investor is, uh, is the person who would like the benefits of uh, what real estate has to offer without making all the mistakes on their own or, or having to start from scratch. They can leverage and, and utilize someone else's existing system and basically not have to uh, put as much time into it. So uh, I'm also an active investor and I, I do work with passive investors uh, to help them create cash flow. And, you know, it's just what I love doing. So just we're, we're looking to go out and solve problems. 
Fantastic. So you you go out and help in, people come to you with a bit of extra money and they say, hey, Sep, I want to learn about creating passive income. Can you help me? And you sort of act as the guider to, to guide them into the right investments, either partnering with yourself or partnering as a team. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. Basically help them uh, avoid the, the minefields and, and all the pitfalls that, that could be associated with <laughs> Well, that, 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 and that's why we've got you on the show, mate, which is exactly that, to help other international investors avoid those pitfalls or minefields when they're trying to invest successfully here in the US. So, Seth, with that being said, what's been your biggest learning experience to date that has shaped your success in the US? I think I'd have to quote Jay Massey on this one, uh, one of my mentors, where the real estate investing is not just about the property, that it's, it's about the team, it's about the investor identity, it's about the marketplace. And that was uh, kind of the paradigm shift for me earlier on because I thought you just, you know, all we have to do is find that really good property, that sweet deal, and then it's automatically going to cash flow. There's not going to be any problems, Mm -hmm. you know, and things would just work like clockwork. But reality is very different. Real estate investing is still a business. And um, and I think a lot of times we we forget about that. So that's the great thing is it's it's scalable and and that there are ways to to make it so it can be fun and, and, uh, and enjoyable. Fantastic. And Sep, looking forward, what are you doing to build on your business and grow as a real estate entrepreneur here in the U.S.? Well, what we're looking at currently is focusing on acquiring portfolios of single-family homes mm-hmm. that a lot of these uh, REITs, these real estate investment trusts that have purchased over the years, and and be, be able to provide clean, safe, affordable housing uh, through those and through the teams that we have in place within the market. So we are in this more for buy-and-hold investing. Our, our mission basically is to uh, help other investors retire earlier and uh, and create multiple streams of passive income uh, within good job-friendly markets. Fantastic. And just quickly to uh, elaborate a little bit more, I, I get asked a, a fair bit, you know, what happens in a recession and, and you know, you, your property doesn't cash flow as nicely, hence your passive income is not there. What are you doing to make your portfolio recession-proof? Are there certain, you know, key parameters that you're applying to each ind- individual property or market that you go into that you're making sure that your clients and your money and capital, the continual uh, passive income is maintained through the, the, not only the good times, but the bad times. That's definitely something that every investor should be asking uh, prior to purchasing any deal is how will this particular asset that I'm looking at perform if the market does not appreciate 10% next year, if it doesn't even appreciate at all, or even if it's negative appreciation. What we found as, as being more of a recession proof, and it's not guaranteed, but you know, more of a recession-proof strategy is to invest for cash flow instead of for speculation. Right. Uh, over here in California, where, where you and I live, there's a lot of competition for a lot of these deals where the land is so expensive mm-hmm. and the properties might not even cash flow. There, there'll be negative cash flow from the beginning right. and, and people still buy them because they see, well, hey, the real estate in California has appreciated for the last five years, so that means it's going to appreciate for the next five years. And there's, there's no guarantee with that. <laughs> um, so, with, with I, I think the, the safest recession-proof strategy is to make sure you have enough reserves on on the expenses, on the on your underwriting, because you do make money on the deal, on the buy, not on the sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you need to uh, definitely be be prepared. You know that it, will the deal make sense if you have to keep it longer, or uh, if the net operating income is is a little bit lower than expected. And if the deal still makes sense, then find a good deal. Fantastic. That's that's great, and I love exactly what you said. I use that line all the time. You, it's a, you make money when you buy, not when you sell. But great. So, Seth, with all your experience and understanding how to achieve financial freedom and break out of the rat race, I know you're primed to give me your top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Sure. 
What's the most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Consistency. Even if you fall down, get back up and try again. What's the most influential tool you use in your real estate business and why? I think the most influential tool is the cash flow game by Robert Kiyosaki. And the reason is because it's a great simulation on how to invest and how to navigate challenges that occur in investing uh, in personal life. And it, it helps to be able to, to make the mistakes in the game and learn from that. And also helps playing that game with, with friends or family that you're thinking about partnering up with to get them to get interested in real estate investing as well. And it's been a great resource for me to network with other investors and uh, sellers, even uh, property managers, brokers. And, you know, it's just been awesome. Fantastic. And for those listeners out there, the cash flow game is cash flow 101 by Robert Kiyosaki. If you Google that, I'm sure it will pop up and it's a little, little rat that looks like he's holding a piece of cheese and he's trying to escape the rat race, but very, very influential as Sepp said. It's a great game, a little bit like Monopoly. Uh, you can play it safe, but also understand the power of escaping the rat race through developing that passive income. So Sepp, what's the most exciting project you're working on right now? Well, currently we're working on a portfolio of, of houses from a particular REIT and we're trying to structure it so that it's with a, a little money down, uh, actually little to no money down uh, with the, the seller carrying a second. Mm-hmm. That's not really common. Um, we haven't closed on it yet, but uh, keeping the fingers crossed. Fantastic. So basically uh, trying to acquire more property uh, with the least amount of money required. Fantastic. I, lo- I love those uh Getting a little bit strategic with those invest with those purchases and getting the seller involved, it definitely helps. Who is the most influential person in your career? I have to say, uh, it's tied between three: Robert Kiyosaki, uh, the real estate guys, and Jay Massey. Fantastic. So, if any of you, any of those guys listening out there, Robert Kiyosaki, the real estate guys, or John Massey, you are Sepp's most influential person persons, I should say, in his career. Fantastic stuff. And Sepp, last question is the best U.S. deal you've completed to date. The best deal was a 52-unit uh, apartment complex in uh, Texas that was acquired with no money down. Um, it did require some renovations, but uh, we purchased that property. Total debt was about $1.2 million at purchase, mm-hmm. and we recently had it replaced for $2,050,000. Wow. And that was over a uh, two-and-a-half-year period. Fantastic. So how did you get no, um, no money in the deal? Did the seller just take a massive seller carry-back finance? Exactly. We actually assumed the existing uh, commercial financing mm-hmm. and structured it where the, the seller carried the down payment. And um, it, it was a win-win for the seller, and we were able to get the asset off the bank's uh, balance sheet as well. Fantastic. So did you did he take equity in the property, the seller? Uh, no, just a, a debt position. They uh, they did make some uh, some money compared to the price that they originally bought it for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the property did need a lot of management improvement and a lot of renovation. Uh, but the deal so made sense for us uh, in the long run. It was, it was a big repositioning. Fantastic. That's great. Congratulations. Uh, Sepp, and where, <laughs> and where can people reach you to continue the conversation? So we're currently working on the website. Uh, right now, the best avenue is uh, I'm pretty active on my Facebook page. Uh, mm-hmm. You can also reach out to me on LinkedIn, and uh, I'm here to help. W- what was that Facebook page again? Sure. It's uh, facebook.com slash my full name, Sepper Bacan. Well, Sepp, your story is truly incredible. I love hearing these types of stories and understanding your why factor, which set you on this journey. Well done, mate, and a huge pat on the pack. Sepp, you really demystified the entire process and helped clarify what it really takes to successfully leave your day job. Thanks again for dropping by and chatting with us, and we'll catch up soon. Thank you very much, Reed. It's been fun.
Well, there you have it, straight from the horse's mouth. Sepp was working in a J-O-B just under a year ago, but now he's a full-time investor and achieved that by building enough passive income so that he was able to leave his day job. As Sepp explained, it took him about four years to achieve his success, but with the right team around him, he was able to be focused on his goals. At the end of the day, it isn't rocket science, and we really just need to understand two things, and that is you need to understand why you want to leave your day job. Is it to spend more time with your kids or you want to surf more and travel the world? Whatever it is, you need to develop your why or your driving force. And the second thing is understanding the power of passive income through real estate investing, getting your money working for you to the point where it produces more income than your day job, which means you can retire early. Sepp and I spoke also about how to recession-proof your portfolio by purchasing rental properties that cash flow with a sustained demand and growth. Now, make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's conversation with Sepp and any links we mentioned on today's show. A summary of our conversation will go up on my website at rsmpropertygroup.com. Click on the podcast tab. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in and continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge. I hope you look a lot out of today's show and I hope it has inspired you to take some action to start on the journey towards breaking out of the rat race. To continue the conversation with us, follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching RSM Property Group and remember to leave an iTunes review below as we really do appreciate it as it helps us grow a community of eager listeners interested in investing in the US. So until next week, take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Thank you.